I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome to the holiday edition of I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show. This special year-end edition features some of our favorite moments from 2017. Our first selection is a segment featuring the author Doug Delaney, author of Tower Dog. Doug talks about how work is literally killing American workers and how the most dangerous job in America is also one of its least known. We also have a reading from the book. And today we are going to be focusing on a book called Tower Dog, Life Inside the Deadliest Job in America, written by a man named Doug Scott Delaney. Doug is joining us on the phone momentarily. This book is out from Soft Skull Press. Doug, are you with us? I'm here, guys. Hey, Doug. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. There's there's a lot of these jobs like that. I mean, I I don't think people really realize just how much weirdness goes on in kind of the blue-collar world. You're, some of this it stuff rem, reminded me a lot of when I was working many, many years ago in a painting crew in New York, uh, upstate New York, and we had guys that would uh, pour turpentine in their beer at 6.30 in the morning and, and drink it. Yeah. You know, all, all kinds of crazy stuff that I tell people about now and they don't they don't believe me at all. Is there something about these kind of jobs that just makes people go crazy, Doug? There absolutely is. And it's not you know, and I, I, I would love to say we're the only lunatics in the business. We're not any field road workers. Uh, I've reached, you know, I've been a lot of this story takes place in Nashville and they're tearing up Nashville. That town is a boom non union boom town. It is incredible. It's, every road is tore up. We, they've got crews from all over the country in Nashville. Road crews, power crews, electrical crews, borers, directional borers, fiber layers. They're all in hotels. They're all nuts. They're all the drugs, frankly, the drugs and alcohol in any blue collar industry is almost uncontrollable. And it it's what it is. These guys are gonna drink, they're gonna do their drugs, you can't stop it. Uh, it's what they do to unwind. Uh, like I said, you can't I'm not saying these are stupid men, but they are largely uneducated. And they, they will, they will find what they need to get through the day. Now, does that affect their performance? Absolutely. But out of all the deaths in my book, and there's a lot of them, not one could be traced to use of drugs on a tower or use of alcohol on a tower. Whether a guy was hung over, they don't know. If a guy smoked pot a week before and he had THC in his system, okay. But that does not affect his job on a tower. Uh, so it goes to show you, you can't say that drugs are the killer in this industry. They are not. Drugs seem to be almost a tool for a lot of the industry. Coping mechanism. The yeah, I won't name the company, but <sighs> I was with the company whenever they had to take, because, you know, I have enough vices without drugs. And if they needed somebody to take just a mandatory test to the insurance company, I went, because they knew there might be a little out beer in there, but there was no drugs in there. So I was a designated cup filler. And now they do it so randomly, they avoid that now, they can randomly check anybody. But it's not in their, it's not in their best interest to do that, because I did a survey, an informal survey, out of a crew of men, there were 10 of us, and two of us could pass the test on any given day. On any given day, these eight guys could never pass a test. And that, to me, is pretty much might be the, the, uh, the paradigm for the industry, or any blue-collar industry, for that matter. It is not solely, in any way, you know, a, a tower thing. And well, I was being arch, you know, a little bit before when I said, you know, is, is this is this job driving people crazy? But, I mean, I, I actually now want to get to this point. Are these jobs where people are being worked to death and are these jobs that are so low-paid and so uh, poorly remunerated, when you, when you talk about an industry that's awash in drugs and alcohol, that sounds like a symptom of a sickness that the that these jobs are causing. These, these American jobs, these particularly American jobs, by the way, they're not like this in other countries, are, are causing. Is is this a symptom of, of a sickness that we have we have created? And and I think you know we've got two guys who, in the studio, of course, who are in recovery and can speak very much more to this than I can. But uh, this this seems to be a real problem that people aren't talking about, even beyond the the horror the horror facts that you know in your book, you know, 40, 40 people die. You know what I mean? Which is horrible enough. We're talking about a whole undiagnosed part of what, which seems to be a serious mental illness uh, that they, these jobs are causing. I think it's environmental in a lot of ways. If you want to really go big picture, and this is my personal opinion, uh, we have 
back in when I was growing up, my father worked for a union elevator company, Houghton Elevator, New York City. My father was one of the men who built the World Trade Center. And my dad, at the time, say mid-70s, was making $8 an hour. He had a house, two cars, and supported a family of six. It was doable. There was a middle class. I think with the advent, let's say about 1980-ish, 88, and ever since then... Ronald the Reagan. Class, <coughs> yeah, well, you know where I'm going. The middle <laughs> class has been eviscerated. The middle class has been destroyed. Find me one man with a decent pay who can raise, who can have a house, two cars, and raise a family. It's impossible. His wife's working. They're paying child support. The economy will dictate the pressure on any working man. And, you know, we've seen this happen before. I mean, you go back to Maitland or you go back to... Uh, um, you know, the 1920s and, and, and that, that unionizing era, that it, it seems to me the working class has lost its teeth for the upper low percentage of the company. It's a fact. It is a fact. The trickle-down theory is an illusion at Disneyland. There is no trickle-down. There's yeah. never been a trickle-down. If you think, well, here's the idea, uh, and right now with these new tax cuts, and I'm not a tax expert, but the new tax cuts say, if you make less than $50,000 a year, your taxes are going up. How yeah, you get hammered. <laughs> right. And you want to talk about putting... Okay, if your tendency, if the, if the pressure on you is like, you know, coal for a diamond to produce something with with such pressure and, and no way, you take away hope. And they, they don't really take away hope from the working people. The people that aren't working and are trying to work can look at a situation and say, why should I take this job if I can make more not working? It's, it's a real problem. I don't have the answer, but if it leads to more abuse of substance, I agree 100%. Many a time, I have had more than one beer because I was like, damn, how am I going to get through this month? This is absurd. You know, so I can see all of us teetering on that edge. And with power guys, if you add in, if you add in the, 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 the thing that plus every day you go to work, you could die, might be I do not expect the carriers to be saints any more than they should expect the dogs to be saints. Henry Ford was a rabid anti-Semite. William Levitt would not allow realtors to sell homes to blacks or browns or yellows. Vanderbilt is credited with killing thousands of coolies during the construction of the Union and Central Pacific Railroad, but most historians will put the number at around 130. Still. That is quite an accomplishment because considering about 12,000 workers built that railroad, one in every 92.3 of them died doing it, making it hands down the deadliest job of their day. 60 men out of 10,000 workers died building the World Trade Center, averaging one in 166.6 tradesmen. Tower worker fatalities since January of 2003 averaged one dead dog per 65 workers. I do not expect the carriers to be saints, but I do expect them to peel back a few layers of insulation when a worker dies, rather than what they do, which is immediately attempt to find fault in the climber or the subcontractor or the contractor or the general contractor and cover their asses all the way home. Then they might order a stand down, or issue a boilerplate press release expounding how the carrier has always been a staunch proponent of safety in the industry, we, 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 all the way home. Worker safety has always been a hallmark of AT&T. Though AT&T does not handle wireless tower construction itself, we strongly support the work of OSHA and the National Association of Tower Erectors, who together launched their Wireless Tower Worker Safety Initiative in 2007, resulting in a dramatic improvement in worker safety. The stand-downs usually last 24 hours and consist of your supervisor, Sarge or Jimmy or Scotty, rounding up the crew and saying, please don't do what these asses did and make sure to fill out your JSAs. It's Nancy Reagan saying, just say no. It is always too little too late, but it looks good to whatever press stands to cover the incident. The dramatic improvement in worker safety perhaps is not that all dramatic, considering that in the four and a half years before the initiative, there were 57 fatalities, and in the nine and a half years since the initiative, there were 73. That's an improvement, yes, but nothing for any industry to be even remotely smug about. Our second segment comes from a conversation with the Cuban-American author, Achio Bejas. 
Achi talks about the convention of having a quote-unquote pet foreigner in communist Cuba and how families did everything they could to survive. We also have a reading from Achi's book, Days of Awe. We are with author Achi Obeja. She is joining us live by phone from Oakland, uh, and we're going to tip her in in just one second. But I'm joined, as always, by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. And Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. And we're going to be discussing the work of author, a local author, in fact, a former Chicago Tribune reporter who, if yeah. I remember right, won a teamwork Pulitzer uh, for a series of stuff about O'Hare Airport. Maybe she could fill us in on that. But we want to welcome into the studio, through the magic of the phone, Achi Obeja. Achi, are you with us? I am. How are you? Doing Welcome, great. Machi. You uh, you touched on a couple interesting things. One is um is poetry. And you you play with language really well and it comes through very clearly in in all your work that you have a deep love of language and um Thank well, you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um and I was wondering, you know, Jer- Jeremy introduced me a while ago to um Three Trapped Tigers. The the Infante novel, the big honker oh, yeah. and that that that's a novel of cuban literature and, and it deals a lot with um wordplay originally written in spanish i was wondering it's one it, of my favorite books of all time actually it's it's a monster and uh, i was wondering if you found it easier or more fun to to play with language in spanish or english or um, if you felt a big difference between the two thinking and writing yeah what a good question um my voice is very different in spanish than it is in english and i wish i could explain why that is but um um it's uh it's i think it's a little bit more serious in spanish um and part of it is because although spanish is my native language and i'm fully fluent in it um english is the language with which i grew up and to a certain extent, especially now, um, English is the language of my everyday life. And so to a certain extent, there's a, a, a greater confidence in English, even though there may be greater comfort in Spanish for me. And so I tend to play more in English than I do in Spanish, although I'm not a punster the way Guillermo Cabrera Infante is. Um, You're right, 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 right. Three, Yeah, Three Trap Typer. I mean, he, it, you know, I, I'm always very much in awe of his translators. Um, usually it's uh, Susan Jo Levin. I think that's who did Three Trap Tigers. And um, um, because he is, you know, the punning is just nonstop, right. especially... Uh, in his later work, um, and he he really loved to also to take words apart etymologically and stuff like that, which uh, I find really fun to read. But I I'm not as as inclined to to play with them. Etchi, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, Havana Noir and your story. And I'm going to probably slaughter Zen Zen Zik. Is that right? Zen Zen Zik. Yeah. Okay. Close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at pronunciation. Um, so okay. first of all, I, I thought the story was phenomenal. I, I loved it. Thank uh, you. I this was my favorite story in the collection, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. Oh wow! Um, There's some really good stories in that collection. I know it's phenomenal, and you know what? I, I I haven't been a fan of all the noir collections. I read the Memphis one, which I liked a lot. I thought the the retro Chicago one was good, but I didn't love the contemporary Chicago one. That's just. Um, yeah, I, I thought the Contemporary Chicago one was one of the weaker entries in the series. I got it. I'm in it, but I know that it wasn't the strongest one. Whoa, dissing the Contemporary Chicago one. I'm not dissing, uh, actually. I'm yeah. dissing the no, editor. I mean, I, I, a, lot, a lot of people I love are in that book, and uh, I recommend it, in fact, a lot of people for that book, but I do think that uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't as strong as some other ones. I could. I mean, I agree. I, mean, I think there's some really strong ones. I, think, I don't know if you've read the Trinidad one. It's no. amazing. I'm actually gonna. Yeah. I'm actually gonna email you after the show and ha- have you give us a list of all these authors you're talking about. Because <laughs> I'm not all one. Right. One of the reasons we do this show is um, uh, it's to turn people on to writers that people may never have heard of and free books right. and, and and free books, of course. But the other thing is, is you, <laughs> we like to cover um, Chicago Midwest books in translation, um, small presses. You know things that aren't going to necessarily make sure. it make it into the New York Times bestseller list, but I wanted to you're, ask you. You're doing God's work. God's work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. 
But I wanted to, you know, the character of Tom Mahler, he was like the... Um, uh, pet foreigner. Yeah, he's like the pet right. American. Uh, and they were talking about, um, in the story, how every family strives to have like a pet foreigner that can bring them things from outside the country. Simple things such as flour, I believe, wasn't that one of the... And and Tom Mahler in the story was bringing medical uh, computer software and things like that. Is this um, mm-hmm. is this a real phenomena, the pet foreigner? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's yeah. No, I didn't make that up. That's uh, an ap- I mean, that was part of my fascination. Uh, the notion of the pet foreigner. Listen, let me let me give you an example from real life okay. of how far it goes. Okay. Um, a lot of the time that I was living in Havana, I was there because I had a girlfriend who was an artist. Her uh, assistant uh, had a Cuban husband. She also had a Spanish lover. And when the Spanish lover came to visit, the Cuban husband literally moved out of the house. We would help him move out of her apartment. We would remove all signs of his existence. So that when the Spanish lover showed up, um, he would, you know, not feel threatened by the Cuban lover. Her entire family was aware of this performance that had to be played out for this Spanish guy. Why? Well, because the Spanish guy would drop money on them whenever he came, and he would bring things for them that were essential, um, especially medicine for her family um, and a lot of things for her son. Um, eventually, she left her Cuban husband and, uh, you know, married the um, Spanish lover, and uh, she was with him for almost, I don't know, 15 years, and then she divorced him and went back to the Cuban husband, believe it or not. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, that, is, that is actually not as crazy a story as it might sound, this notion of actually cleaning out the... Uh, the, the apartment making it seem as though, you know, they've been waiting forever for this guy. So it absolutely uh, does happen. I, there are a lot of situations in Cuba right now that are problematic in terms of how things work. For example, now you can buy property in Cuba, okay? It's possible now to do that, except for the average Cuban, it's impossible to do that because, among other things, there are no mortgages. You have to have cash. Uh. And, and so we're talking, especially because of this inflated market, of, you know, it's often, you know, uh, over $100,000 cash for, you know, even the most humble abode. So it, it engenders a need for a, a foreign-Cuban partnership. The Cuban to have the right to buy, because foreigners can't buy. I Legally, see. foreigners can't buy. But the Cubans don't have the capital. Amazing. So what ends up happening is that a lot of people marry or set up, you know, informal agreements, and so you need the pet foreigner to do these kinds of things. You know, you um, and, th- and there was a time when the pet foreigner was even more imperative for simple things. For example, there were stores that were that only allowed in foreigners. You had to show a foreign passport wow, to go in. Wow, that's amazing. father, Enrique, dropped from my grandmother Suma's womb on a cloudy August day in 1920 in a tiny house on a muddy acre near the one-lane town of Meari in Oriente. For good luck, a rooster's severed head hung from the door of the room like mistletoe. Adim Chanath Chouts Lilith was written in the animal's blood on the doorframe. It was a time of great prosperity in Cuba. The natives called it the Dance of the Millions. No one could know that, less than a decade later. The country would be practically bankrupt and under one of the bloodiest dictatorships in its history. Enrique's father was Luis San Jose, like Sima, a secret Jew, but unlike Sima, who held on to their inherited fear of discovery as if it were the breath of life itself, Luis was less sure of punishment, and indeed less sure of what, if anything, they might be punished for. Luis's family had been in Cuba so long, their worship hidden and passed on in such subterfuge that like the distortions inherent in a child's game of whispers. By the time it was Luis's turn, he had no real understanding of Hebrew, no concept that common words and expressions in the hills of Oriente, such as bizcocho, chinela, spacha, were all transparently Judeo-Espanol. 
He knew he was a Jew, but he wasn't altogether sure he really understood or cared what that meant. According to what Moises Manak has told me in letters that began arriving shortly after my first trip to Cuba, Luis and Sima were simple folk, common to the core. They made the torturous trek to church in Santiago de Cuba at Christmas every year, but changed their linens and lit candles now and then on Friday nights. Because Luis and Sima lived deep in the woods, through nearly unpassable roads bristling with orchids and bromeliads and hung with vines, they felt safe enough to be somewhat careless about their fate. Moises Menach tells me my grandparents had braided homemade candles and a brass menorah in plain sight, right next to a small icon of the Virgin of Charity, who was said to have first appeared not far from where they lived. He tells me his family, recently arrived from Turkey, instantly recognized Luis and Sima as Maranos and that they were astonished that there were any Anusim at all left in Cuba, since Jews, for so long banned from the Spanish colonies, had for years been emigrating from Cuba to Mexico, Venezuela, and Costa Rica as they each declared independence and dropped the anti-Semitic prohibitions of their colonial master. We couldn't imagine how Luis and Sima arrived at their situation, if they were just so isolated that they never knew anyone but each other, or if their fear kept them from ever making more than cursory contact with others, Moises wrote me. They were to us, and perhaps to themselves too, the last living Moranos in the New World. Indeed, there were times when the two of them inadvertently fit right in, such as in the days before Yom Kippur when Luis would wake up before dawn and take two chickens a white cock for him and usually a speckled hen for her, and swing them by their feet around his and her heads, the animals screeching and flapping while the two of them chanted the necessary prayers of thanksgiving and atonement. To anyone who might have spied them performing the caparot, it would have seemed like just another campesino family, infused by the fevers of Santeria, cleansing themselves of whatever evil had been afflicting them. What might have horrified anyone peeking in later is that, after the chickens were properly slaughtered and their guts tossed on the roof for birds, Luis and Sima did not leave the animals to rot as so sacrifices to the gods. According to Santaria, the dead birds were now the repositories of all the wickedness absorbed from the lives of the supplicants, but instead prepared them for a delicious and hearty feast. But back then, hardly anyone was looking. In those days, Oriente, what mattered most was sugar, not God and the most devout efforts were reserved for the hard work offered by the ubiquitous mills. Dark, silent Luis, who was stout and strong, made his living by working in the fields, wielding a machete like a swordsman. On his own time during the dead season, he'd work his own small acre, growing malanga and sweet potatoes, and even his own tiny tobacco vega. A woman with the kind of plain beauty that unfolded as you got to know her. Sima knew how to handle her own sharp points, taking and sewing between her extensive and arduous duties with the black women in the mill's kitchen. During the months away from the refinery, she'd help in the garden, slipping into Louise's arms between the vines of tobacco, emerging hours later, intoxicated and freed from her fears for a little while, laughing with earth and leaves in her hair.
Our third segment was with Chicago author Anne Elizabeth Moore. And the former editor of Punk Planet, talked about government control of production and how the current crackdown on the media is damaging our democracy. We also have a reading from her book, Body Horror. Today we have a very special guest. We have a native Chicagoan and, in fact, a zine legend here with us, Anne Elizabeth Moore, uh, who is the editor and one of the founders of Punk Planet and has a new book out called Body Horror. And thank you so much for coming back to our town. And, oh, uh, God, I'll come back anytime. One of the questions I wanted to ask is I've I was I would I moved to Chicago in nineteen ninety five and I, I liked how you said you moved here because of music um in the book and I, I did as well. I was going to school in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I dropped out and I moved here. And I will admittedly say I wasn't very politically active until the Bush administration, um, just because things changed drastically. And I'm not a huge Clinton defender or anything, but I didn't become I became much more aware when the Bush administration took over. Um, but I wanted to ask you, of all the interviews you did for Punk Planet, were you an interviewer? I just want to make sure. I, I had, I remember. Were, I, was I interviewing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. All of it. I didn't know if there was essays and stuff that you did, too. I, I, I've read that book. I forgot what it's called. Unmarketable? No, the one about the interviews from Punk oh, Planet. Oh, the We Owe You Nothing. Yes. Nothing yeah. Yet. So what I wanted to ask you, just going back to the Punk Planet days, is what was your most memorable or aggravating interviews that you did back in the day? Well, I mean, I w- so I was around when Punk Planet was founded, but I didn't come back then to, to like really work in the office until 2004. So between 2004 and when we shut down in 2007, um, that, was, that was pretty much my era. Um, and at that time, you know, there was a lot going on in 2004. The main thing that we sort of don't realize was probably the most influential was that that was when all of the decisions that Bush Jr. made around post 9-11 politics, particularly the Department of Homeland Security, that was when the Department of Homeland Security actually was fully staffed and operational. And so everything that was like anti-terrorist, which of course is like austerity measures and, and problems and policing and surveillance, was in place then. So for me, I was in a in a very sort of concise political moment um, that was about the post-9-11 world really flourishing. So all of the exciting interviews I was doing were people that were sort of on the front lines of cultural production that were doing really amazing work that brought that moment to light. Um, and it was a lot of, of course, for me, this all of those things about surveillance and capitalism. These are you know, issues of gender in their in their forefront. Um, so for me, all of the like post riot girl stuff was really exciting, and all of the non-binary and and crip queer artists that we were talking to were were doing the that work at that time. Um, but I mean, of course, like every day was just a ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> a ridiculous experience, and I probably could just go on for hours talking about uh, I don't know the day that uh, I don't I don't even want to start because I'll just get a lot of people in trouble. That's okay. Of course, um, Punk Planet shut down because of the distribution problem, isn't that right? One of the independent sort of secondarily, yeah. yeah. I mean, what we can look at is is a whole history of government tightening around uh, mailing rights and. Uh, things that made distribution difficult for small to medium scale magazines. Um, But of course, like that's set against uh, the psychological effects of neoliberalism where people are like, I don't really need to support this thing. It's here already. It'll be fine without me. And, And these things don't affect me in a personal way. And so subscribers were dropping and people were more and more deliberately saying, um, Independent production does not differ in any significant way from corporate production. And that was what, of course, Unmarketable was written about 10 years ago. And that was really the biggest bummer was this shift in consciousness from like, it doesn't matter who pays you to, um, well, from it matters who pays you to it doesn't matter who pays you. 
And that's really interesting because Punk Planet was part of a wave of magazines that now no longer exist. There was a huge and vibrant culture. Um, Fact Sheet 5, Stop Stop Smiling, smiling. Um, Your Flesh. You guys, Punk Planet, I believe, covered almost every band that sent... um, uh, piece of music to them. We yeah, we reviewed everything we received for yeah. over a decade. Yeah, so I mean, and there's nothing like that now. If you think of the knock-on effects of that now, though, where whereas you used to be able to pick up a magazine and find out everything that was going on in a particular cultural moment from from books and music, now it's nearly impossible. People are are relying on Spotify algorithms to find things yeah. or Condé Nast owned websites, yeah. and that's not the same thing as a kind of a curatorial approach which you guys took. And I, I wonder if you could just speak briefly to what we've kind of lost as a result of that. Well, I mean, Punk Planet, when we shut down, was the primary platform for approximately 500 writers, cultural producers, graphic designers, illustrators. And many of those people have gone on to find other work. But the work that they did that defined their career and and put them in a place to know the kinds of stuff they would be doing for the rest of their lives was done at Punk Planet. So... The loss of those 500 voices having absolute intellectual freedom to just do what they wanted, that's a loss that we won't, we can't even detect what the impact of that is. That's, um, that's gutting to me. Well, that's what's happened to journalism in general. You know, exactly. You know, exactly. People are paid $20 to write a blog article, and back in the day, you know, you might have a job. And it's also, I like what you said about the government tightening, because one of the neoliberal platforms is like small business small business but yeah. small businesses don't have any advantages especially i mean if you want a mon pa in chicago rather it be a coffee shop or a barber shop like my barber wouldn't give money to the, my alderman's platform and then the city came the next day and told him to take his sign down i'm not oh going to say God. the alderman's name but his Amazing. initials are eb mm-hmm. and um you know it's like things like that and government doesn't support small business you know no. they use that term but like when they refer to small business like 50 million or less you know and it's, yeah. it's it's kind of a disgraceful thing and people buy into that and think that these tax breaks are coming so people like you and you and i can start something and it's just not true yeah and and of course when we even say the word small business in a government context the immediate hope is that that business will scale up and it will become a large business and then we will partner with government and then everything will be amazing for for both of us, right? But that's not in any way supportive of a general population. Exactly. And it's Ed Burke. I'm going to say it. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. I was going to say it, but I'm glad that you did. I mean, that's an interesting thing, though, but the idea that a business has to grow all the time to just be viable yeah. is a concept that really is rarely examined correctly because that's not actually true. A business does not always have to grow to be successful and be self-sustaining. And there's this idea in our culture that if you don't have growth at any cost, you're, you're dead. And that's a bizarre thing to me. Yeah. And that was really what was happening in the 1990s around sort of independent cultural production like Punk Planet was this realization that actually no, you didn't need to grow. You needed to serve. You needed to work among the people that supported you in creating the thing in the first place and that that was what we actually now call sustainable. And now that sustainable means theoretically like long-term future ever-expanding growth and sort of the lapping in of all sorts of other um, processes in order to sustain yourself, we don't even know how to like make a sustainable sort of framework for economic security anymore. That reminds me of, uh, I went to um, Memphis recently and they have uh, this, it, this pyramid that used to be a stadium, which they've turned into this giant bass pro shop. Wow. And my wife and I went there just because they have alligators there and I wanted to see the alligators. And we were like walking through. It's crazy how yeah. big it is. And my wife looked at me. She's like, "This lifestyle is not sustainable." And it was <laughs> like, it was. And we just started cracking up because we were. It was like so stated in the obvious, but it, it's, it's, it's insane how much stuff is produced. Like yeah. I recently w- went and I googled like White Sox hats, yeah. and there's like thousands of White Sox <laughs> hats. You know, it's one team in one city, 
that's not a very good team that probably doesn't sell a lot of merchandise. Hey, hey, it's the best team in baseball in April. Now, come oh, on. Oh, that's true. Come on. <laughs> okay, April's come over, on. though. Yeah. April's <laughs> over. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? It's like there's so much stuff. Yeah. And it's like how are we going to continue this? It, it, it's one of those things I can't think about too much because I'm like, you know. Well, not – I mean, so one of the pieces that was in consideration for the book that builds on some of the labor reporting that I've done – looks at the impact of that hyper-production mode in Cambodia. And what we saw in Cambodia between uh, 2007, when I first started going there, and 2014, which was my last trip there. I was going to ask, did you live there or did you just spend it? I spent a part of every year there, yeah. Um, Was that production was amping up so rapidly that workers were failing to actually physically be able to respond, and they were falling to the floor, fainting in mass numbers between 800 on the small end and 2,500 on the large end. And this still continues today. So production is so high, capitalist production, like pretty clearly, that women's bodies are failing to be able to keep up with it, which is how we get sort of the misogyny and then how we start to look at this as an impact specifically on on the, the failures of women's bodies to keep up with capitalist demand. Note, please, who it was that we are told wanted time standardized. The robber barons that ran the railroads, the wealthy, and high-stakes financial investors. Let me take another moment to underscore that. The standardization of time did not emerge from a popular uprising. A little over a century later, in 1989, an astronomer, employee of the U.S. Army Laboratory Command, and time historian named Ian R. Bartke published an article called the adoption of standard time. In it, he revealed that standard time was not initiated by the railways at all. In fact, it was initiated by astronomers, who preferred to let the private interests of the railroads both do the dirty work of, and take the blame for, the fundamental shift to the way U.S. residents arranged their days and interacted with each other that standardized time would require. Of course, this was calculated. People already hated the rich, who ran the railroads, but harbored few to no opinions about the scientists who looked at the stars. Those scientists, however, needed a better way of communicating across great distances of land what was happening at the exact same time. Why not see if the railways would get on board with this standard time thing, the astronomers figured, and do the dirty work? Pure science should not be sullied by such quibbles. For it turns out that the standardization of time was enormously controversial. Bartke describes explosions and people shooting out the massive town clocks that the railways had installed, monuments to a hated temporal uniformity, in protests of the stripping away of individual determination over when things were going to happen. What people were protesting the loss of, and how they got around even on trains before the introduction of standard time, was talking to other people. Business owners were angered by standard time because a centrally installed clock meant no one had to step into their store to inquire about the local time. Unmarried young people were sad because eligible hotties passing through had no excuses to start a conversation. And train porters, perhaps the most frustrated of all, saw full minutes shaved off of needed rest stops at several different points in their already long, overworked days. Our final segment was with author Donna Seaman, the author of the book Identity Unknown. Donna had a rollicking conversation with the boys about rediscovering lost female artists in one of our favorite shows of the year. Well, we have a final reading from uh, Donna's book here. This is a New York artist, actually, someone that uh, I kind of knew in passing, Louise Nevelson, uh, who is actually one of the best remembered, yes. I would say, of, of the artists in this book. So let's hear this quick passage uh, with music from uh, Jamie Branch, the trumpeter from Chicago. Louise Nevelson was everywhere, and then she was nowhere. Would Nevelson have been able to draw on her sense of the mutable nature of reality and taken a philosophical view if she could have known how quickly and completely she was forgotten after her death? After Lori Lyle's biography came out, there was silence. No one else in the public square was critiquing Nevelson and assessing her contribution to modern art. There were no major retrospective exhibitions. No one found her life alluring enough for fiction or film. Her work was rarely reproduced. Museums put her large installations in storage. Perhaps they are too difficult to maintain. Imagine the tedium of dusting every edge and corner. New books about American art, modern art, abstract sculpture, assemblage, installation art. 
All spheres in which Nevelson was a pioneering and driving force omitted her entirely or relegated her to one inadequate, often condescending mention. As Nevelson was eclipsed, Georgia O'Keeffe ascended. Book after book documented and analyzed her life and work from the stunning nude photographs taken by her husband, Alfred Stieglitz, to lush reproductions of her paintings to photographs of her desert refuge. Hunger for all things O'Keeffe sustains a veritable industry, and an entire museum devoted to the sainted artist of the Southwest was erected in Santa Fe, New Mexico. O'Keeffe's sunlit paintings waxed, Nevelson's lunar sculptures waned, and Frida Kahlo had her revenge. Like O'Keeffe, she became a mainstream emblem of female creativity, albeit as a martyr to pain and betrayal. Her life of physical agony and psychological anguish, of great courage and trailblazing artistry, of audacious and indelible self-portraits was celebrated in a torrent of beautiful and affecting books and in an acclaimed film. Like the forgotten Nevelson, Kahlo was a living work of art, with her crown of braids, elaborate earrings, embroidered blouses, and great ruffled skirts. But Kahlo is enshrined, Nevelson obliterated. She was a bird of rare plumage, wrote master playwright Edward Elby, a close friend of Louise Nevelson for more than 20 years. What did he think of Nevelson's erasure? In 2001, Elby wrote a play in homage to the sculpture titled Occupant, a work of exquisite empathy and dark, knowing humor. It's a duet for two characters, the man, 40s, pleasant, and Nevelson, who is, quote, much like the later photographs. And as stage directions explain, encased in a costume, quote unquote, cage. As the play begins, the man starts to introduce her and Nevelson interrupts. Look, dear, everybody knows who I am. He demurs, time passes. You're not as recognizable now as you were. Nevelson says, you're kidding. The man then has the unenviable task of explaining that today few people know who she is. She bristles, she laughs, she exclaims, all right, so I'm invisible, or I don't exist. Which do you want? He tells her that more people know what she looks like than what she did. You're a very famous image, Louise. You were. And that was a reading from Donna Siemens' Identity Unknown about Louise Nevelson, an artist that was certainly very popular right through the late 80s, uh, known for her constructions, known for her use of scrap wood, a uh, I believe she received the National Medal of Honor from Ronald Reagan, she didn't did. she? She did, so, indeed. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to, for me to – when I read this passage, and, and I remember her from the art scene in New York City, uh, I, I found it difficult to square the idea that she was unknown oh. with, with, my, with my recollections exactly. of her. So why did you choose this, this artist and not someone such as – I'll just throw out there – Alice Neal, who's, who's enjoyed a, a late career revival. Why, she why her? has. Well, um, first, I just want to thank you for that. these readings, which are beautiful, and that last one with the mute jazz. Oh, my God, my heart lifts. Um, also, we have another thing in common. My mother is an artist, too. Oh, yes. Yes. So growing up, Louise Nevelson was one of my heroes. I loved her work. I saw it early on. I was a very fortunate child to be taken to museums in New York as, as, a, as a little thing. And um, her work just really wowed me. It was a big influence on me. And she was a superstar. I mean, she was everywhere. Yeah. Fashion magazine. New York Times, on television. On the front cover of Interview front Magazine. front cover of Interview Magazine. Yes, yeah. um, yep. She was on the Dick Cavett Show. I mean, she was everywhere. And I thought, well, this is a woman artist. This is how it is. And then um, by the time I was in art school, I mean, Nevelson died in 88, I believe. I would say 87, 88? Uh, 1988. She was 89 years old. You know, she was a late bloomer. She yes. did not achieve mm-hmm. fame until she was in her 50s. Um, she was very flamboyant. I mean, I have a lot of theories about what happened to Louise Nevelson. But the real seed of this book was me um, coming to Booklist after having gone through art school and then um, also getting an English degree and um, reviewing lots of art books and seeing books come in that would say things like American sculpture. I'm like, oh, great. What pieces of Louise Nevelson am I going to find in this book? I, I'm so excited. And I open the book and there's no mention of Louise Nevelson. I mean, this really happened. Surveys of modern sculpture, surveys of American art. And she was she faded just out. faded that, out. I yeah. mean, she died when she was alive. She was everywhere, as the quote you just um, played. And that shocked me, and that was very upsetting to me. And so this was the first essay I wrote. And lots of people remember her if they were around in those years, or if they're very, you know, art historians. But lots of other people, and I asked people. I did a lot of involu- you know, sort of 
casual polling about this book. Have you ever heard of so-and-so? And people I know who go to museums, they would say, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure who that is. And if I describe her work, they're like, oh, I think I've seen that. But that erasure, um, not that it doesn't happen with male artists, of course it does, but her case sort of was the catalyst for me to just ask about why some people last and why some people don't. And to feel that we're just not, as women, allowed to be part of the pantheon of American artists. There can only be room for one or two. And I think in a way that Louise Nevelson's flamboyance, her, she was so tough. She was so gutsy with her cigarellos and bossing people around. And, you know, she was never, again, sort of a saintly figure that you could safely leave in the desert. Um, I think <laughs> there was a lot like, and you know who I'm talking about, whose work I love and absolutely respect. But um, I think Louise became such a character, and that's what Albert Edward Albee wrote about in his play that um, she was that was it she's off the stage we're gone make room for some better behaved people well, let me ask you a question would she have lasted better in the public memory if with her flamboyance and if with her attitude she had been an Anna Winter figure working in fashion oh sure sure something more commercial Yes. She looks like a fashion designer. Oh, and they loved her. Yeah. Halston loved her. I mean, they gave her clothes. She, you know, in the early years couldn't afford anything. And um, it's true because she insisted on being an abstract sculptor, insisted on building monumental works that took up entire rooms and, and worked with steel. You know, she has many outdoor public sculptures. And she would say, you know, to me, steel is like butter. And she would boss these guys around. <laughs> she got these fabrications. There's a series of photographs of her marching around. You can just hear her going, okay, so sweetie, do this for me, pick that up, put that over here. Um, so she, you know, a movie star, she would never have been forgotten. But mm -hmm. she was in a world where this just was, you know, enough. They just, uh, we had enough of her. But one, to that point, it, it should be pointed out, because her work was so large, a lot of it was so large, and because some of it is public, a lot of people who have made monumental art, a lot of people who have made public art have been forgotten. That's that, true. That is a knock against someone because you can't take it and bring it to somewhere else and redisplay it. It's site-specific. And unfortunately, as we all know, public art, even public art in, in this city, which there's an enormous amount of, I dare you to walk. Her. Well, right. I, <laughs> but I dare you to walk through Grant Park and tell me who the artists are who have done the sculptures, done the, the, the music sculpture in Grant Park, who designed you know any number no, of the figures right. there. Uh, that, that I is, dated one of them, so I... Well... Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the inside story. Columbus <laughs> But I mean, you... Uh, that, that is something that we don't really think about. Pe true. People that work on large scale, unless um, they're architects or unless they've done something like Spiral Jetty that's so mythic and so monumental that everybody talks Picasso. about it. Right, or, or, you know, Guernica, right. But even that can be moved. I mean, that's a, that's a movable piece. The Picasso. It, it, the Guernica. I think you're many. talking about the one oh, the, in City the, Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not movable. But, no. yeah, but <laughs> I was going to say that. People, people also know Pablo Picasso because yeah, he, right. he's done a number of other things. But I mean, people that do giant, massive works, I mean, even I would say Richard Stella is going to, it's going to be a struggle to remember that guy because his work is just so huge. Yeah. Someone like Anselm Kiefer, uh, you're also going to struggle <laughs> to remember him because his paintings are kind of awful. Oh, but, yeah. but, also, <laughs> but also because, you know, they're, they're large, they're huge, they take up entire rooms, they take gallery that that is a knock against someone if they're not doing stuff that is well louise precise. did many many small sculptures and really intricate and beautiful works that people do own um and they used to i mean when i first moved to chicago heard uh, there was a huge piece of hers on display now i imagine these are works that require some care and attention um because they're so intricate i mean i just thought of dusting one of those which is making me crazy but um still they're they're works of immense power even the smaller um in interior work. So I think there's um, something else going on with her. What's the corrective to this? This is an interesting look at people who have been forgotten. But what happens to the next generation of women artists who are out there? We've, we've noted that there's a lot more attention being given to this subject. We've noticed that people from Linda Nochlin or the Gorilla Girls have come out and, and made a point that, uh, you know, one of the best ways to get in the Museum of Modern Art is to be naked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a slight rib on the sculptures there. What, what has to happen for young female artists that are working today to be considered up there with the male artists working today? Well, I think things have 
vastly improved. And I think part of the reason is we have a lot more women writing about art. We have a lot more women arts journalists and critics, more uh, women teaching. So I think it's a conversation. It um, should be a really inclusive conversation so that people come see new artists and share. I mean, now with online, with all the blogs and online, and you know, even a um, radio station like this, I mean, we're really cracking things open so much. So I think the more conversation, the more shared images. You know, if you go on Pinterest, you can find all sorts of people posting women's art and sharing it. And so there's just a lot more opportunities to um, to recognize and, and enthuse about work and talk about it and question it and, and um, try to find its antecedents. I mean, it's always interesting to look back if you see a new artist you know who does she remind you of and uh, we need some lineages of women artists um, in art history the way we do with male artists so I think that conversation that scholarship is all really definitely taking place and um, and also specifically in Chicago to really talk about uh, Midwest art Chicago art and and the um, you know the styles that grew here out of this city as opposed to LA and New York I mean they're all important they're all interesting but just to recognize that larger continuity um, I think is really exciting and positive the boys have been lucky to have great guests on the show this year and they are looking forward to a big year in 2018 happy holidays to everyone and thanks so much for joining us on I94 <laughs> I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. This program was produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker in 2017. 